Hello, and welcome to H-Law's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be talking with William Domnarski about his biography of Richard Posner. Domnarski has had a long career as a lawyer, practicing as he describes it, in a wide range of areas, literally from A, Admiralty, to Z, Zoning. He has also published numerous articles and books in various areas related to law, literature, and the judiciary. Welcome to the show. Well, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to writing legal biographies? Well, there are a lot of questions there. Um, I've been writing about uh, judges for, I guess, almost, well, more than 30 years. I started uh, practicing a little later than most. I had uh, gone to graduate school in English for a while. So I didn't get to law school until I was 27 and finished when I was 30. So I was about five years behind most people. And once I uh, got into practice, I think just a couple of years into it, I became uh, deeply attracted to um, the, the genre of the judicial opinion. And that's when I first encountered uh, Posner because he had these opinions that just uh, kind of uh, caught your attention because there were no footnotes and uh, the vocabulary that he used. And, the tone of the opinions, it just really captured my attention. And I began to read uh, through a subscription to the Federal Reporter, uh, everything that he wrote. Um, I also wrote a bunch of articles about other judges. There was a judge in Connecticut, Leo Persky, long since uh, passed on, who was a really gifted writer. And I wrote one of my first pieces about him because I was, uh, for a while, an appellate prosecutor in Connecticut, and I would read all of his stuff, uh, and I was really impressed. So I wanted other people to be impressed also. And the only way you can do that is to write something that the rest of the bar sees. And so I wrote a couple of things, or one thing about him and some other things about other judges for the Connecticut Bar Journal, which at that time, at least, was a greatly uh, underappreciated journal. I don't know what it's doing these days, but at that time, it was greatly underappreciated. I also wrote something for the Connecticut Law Review about uh, the federal judge, uh, Emmett Clary, who had come from uh, the northeast corner of Connecticut, a very rural part, and he had come from there all the way to the federal judgeship, and I thought that was kind of interesting. When I started practicing law in Storrs, Connecticut, which is in that area, I had the idea of, of talking to everybody who knew him and actually talking to anybody who practiced in those years going back to the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I ended up writing a piece about the 32 lawyers of Wyndham County uh, back in the 40s and 50s and even in the 30s. And I was very fortunate to get that published in the American Scholar, which was a very wide audience. So I've been writing about judges for a long time, is the short answer to your question. All right. And uh, would you tell us how you came to write your current work, Richard Posner? Well, the uh, great judge learned um, Henry Friendly, who followed in the steps of Learned Hand on the Second Circuit, um, had a biography of, of uh, him published in 2012 by a fellow named Don, uh, David Dorson. And it was a, a good book. I'm not trying to disparage it in any way. It was a good book. I, I learned a lot. It was uh, very well written, very uh, thoroughly researched. But it had this, this, for me, kind of glaring defect, which is that because Dorsen came to his project um, 20 or 25 years after Friendly had died, I think it was in 1860 he had passed, uh, passed away, 
he didn't have a chance to talk with people who knew Friendly as a young man or as a college uh, student, as a law student. He was able to talk with one guy who was able to tell him what Friendly was like at the last year's practice, uh, but that was about as close as he could get. And I thought that um, I didn't want that to happen to, uh, to Posner. I wanted people, because I knew him personally and I knew a fair amount about his, his background, I wanted people to know uh, how he came to be who he is. So I approached uh, uh, Posner and said, if no one else is, is writing about you, I'd like to do this and I'd like to have your cooperation. And cooperation is not the same as an authorized book. Authorized means that they have the right to say, don't write this, don't publish this. Um, and that's happened in plenty of, of famous uh, examples of writers who, when they got unhappy with their biographer, pulled the plug. Uh, Gore Vidal was one, for instance. So it's uh, with his cooperation, which meant that he gave me complete access to his archive at the University of Chicago Library. Um, everything there was closed until, I don't know, 25 years, 50 years from now. But he gave me complete access. He uh, would sit down with me with my tape recorder running. We did that for about 10, 12, 15 hours thereabouts. He would answer questions and emails and the like. And on top of that, if I talked to someone who uh, uh, knew him and they said to me, I won't talk to you unless Dick says it's okay, he agreed that when they when they asked, he would say, yeah, it's okay. So all the people I approached, I think there was only, there were only one or two people of the more than 200 that I talked to who didn't want to talk about him. And it wasn't because he it was because there was this deep rivalry between two people and they just didn't want to <laughs> participate. So I had the great good fortune of the cooperation, which opened all sorts of doors to get all sorts of people going back to the fifth grade uh, to talk to me about this, this fellow. And that's what I wanted to do that Dorson hadn't been able to do. I'm sure he would have if he had the chance, but he didn't. Um, so that's why I, I decided to write the book. And on top of that, there was this, this intersection of, of uh, law and literature that um, I wanted to explore a little more with his opinions and uh, his uh, extrajudicial writing. So that's the other reason I decided to write the book. All right. Could you go into a little more detail about your research methods in creating this biography? Oh, sure. In, in some ways, it was all very straightforward. I had to read everything first, uh, or not necessarily first, but I had to read everything. And there's a lot to read. There are more than 50 books. Uh, some of them are multiple editions of the same book. For instance, the uh, economic analysis of law, I think it's in seventh or ninth. I forgot which edition it's in now. Um, I can't say I read every edition. I didn't. Um, but I was able to keep track of all the changes from one edition to another, which is important. But he had more than 50 books. So I had to read all of those books. And then I thought it was important to read all the uh, reviews of the books. In fact, I thought that was essential because I wanted to gauge in a kind of marketplace sensibility, how he was doing in the marketplace. And this, of course, is a uh, tribute to or a, a nod to the law and economics idea. So I wanted to include the market. And the market certainly included uh, reviewers. And then there were the opinions. So there are, at the time I was doing it, uh, there were 3,000. Uh, there are now 3,300 in So I had to read them all. I had read all of them as they came out. I had written a book in 96 about judicial opinions, and I had a long chapter on him. And for that book, I had to reread or all the opinions to the year 1995, I guess it was. I read again, 
So now I had to go back and reread all of those, plus all of the ones from 95 to uh, the present. And that was, uh, uh, it took me several months to do that. And I annotated all of them. Everything that I thought was interesting, I annotated. So I ended up deciding to put them in categories. Um, sometimes they were thematic, sometimes they were by, by subject. And I ended up with about 40 piles, I guess you would say, of, of, uh, of uh, pages that I printed out because I would read everything on a PDF on my computer and print out all the pages that I annotated. So I'd ha I would have piles um, of all these things that I thought were important. And then I had to winnow everything down you know, something that was manageable. So to give an example of a pile, I had an entire pile of opinions that dealt with uh, learned hands, uh, hand formula, which is, as you know, uh, important in the book because this is something that Dick was hell-bent on uh, infusing into the law. Or when it came to Shakespeare, I had every reference to Shakespeare and all the opinions, and then I had to try to make sense of it all. So there were the opinions, there were all the reviews, there were uh, all the books. And then I had to talk to people. I had to get a sense of what people thought of him and how he had come across in the world. Again, the marketplace idea. So I had the great good fortune to talk to all these people going back to fifth grade um, who knew him. And they were all pretty candid. I didn't think anyone was, was holding back. And when people didn't like him or didn't like things that he had said or done, they told me. Um, I had a chance as well, aside from these 200 people, to, uh, for instance, to give an example, I talked with probably 20 or 25 people from the Harvard Law School that were there between 59 and 62 when, when Posner was there. I talked with, I think, every uh, person from the Solicitor General's office who was still living uh, from the time that Posner was there. Um, talked to the other clerk who had clerked for Bread in the 62 63 term. So I talked to all these people at these fundamental uh, uh, stages of, of Posner's development, and I had a chance to talk with all kinds of colleagues from the University of Chicago when he was a full-time professor. And then once you get to his time on the bench, it becomes more difficult because judges don't want to talk about other judges. Now, I did have the chance to, uh, I went to a uh, Seventh Circuit Bar Association conference in Indianapolis about three years ago, I guess. and I had a chance to uh, talk with maybe 15 judges, some on the Court of Appeals, uh, some uh, district judges about Dick, and they were very candid. Maybe I took them by surprise, I don't know. But I ended up, for instance, talking for three hours with uh, uh, William Bauer, who's been on the court even longer than Dick has. Uh, it was just remarkable hearing these the stories about Dick and about the court, about other members of the court, from the people who were there all the time. So I talked with, I think it was three people on the court at length, um, and then I talked with all these other district judges who had told me various things. For instance, they would tell me about how it felt to be reversed, or to have harsh things said about them or their work in opinions, because that's one of the themes that goes throughout uh, Posner's time on the bench, is how caustic he can be when it comes to the lawyers and also, or especially, the judges. So I did all of those things, and then I sat down to write it, and I had to decide the structure, because the Genre of the judicial opinion, or the uh, judicial uh, biography, let's say, uh, is probably one of the most difficult genres to write in because you're giving all this information about law. And at the same time, you know your audience at every moment, on every page, wants something other than law. They want the person. So you have to find a way to get 
the person in there, which is in a way the easy part, but then you have to put law in there in a way that people want to know about. So the standard approach is to have subject chapters on uh, poster on copyright, poster on this, poster. I didn't want to do that because I don't think people cared about that. I wanted to isolate just a few things that were essential to his approach to law and, and track them over time, which is what I ended up doing. But the key thing was always to have the person on the page. So sometimes the way he is in the opinions did the job. Sometimes it was all the letters that I quoted from the archive, and I was very, very fortunate to find all these fabulously revealing uh, letters that he wrote. He had a correspondence with Martha Nussbaum uh, for many years, which probably didn't end until email came about, where they uh, simply talked about everything. So he reveals himself in all kinds of personal, uh, intellectual ways that uh, I had access to. And I wanted to make the most use of those because no one knows about that kind of stuff. No one knows uh, how he feels about this or that. And he gave me a chance to put it all out there. And I said, because I wasn't writing an authorized biography, he did not have the right to come in and say, oh, I don't want you to use that uh, little snippet about what I said about this, uh, this economist I didn't like. He didn't have a right to say that. So I have, for instance, a little section of the book, two or three uh, pages, where I find him sniping, or we find him sniping in all of his academic colleagues, people that he's met over the years. Sometimes they teach in Chicago, sometimes they don't. But he's sniping away. He's, he's finding fault with pretty much all of them, or he's praising them in different ways. So you get a sense of what he thinks is important in, a, in an academic. And this is a important for Posner in particular because he's had his life, I shouldn't say lifelong, his career-long, um, uh, almost hostile relationship to law schools, to the legal academy. He started writing, I think it was 1980 was the first one, where he decided to explain what was wrong with legal scholarship. And then every, about every 10 years, he came out with another updated version of it. So he, in the letters, gives this kind of personal corresponding view of legal academics to the view that he has already given in his academic articles about the change in legal scholarship from doctrinal days, the days that uh, uh, the kind of analysis that dominated when he was in law school in the early uh, 60s to the interest now in law and whatever the and could be. Um, and judges are now complaining, they have been for some time now, about the irrelevance of legal scholarship, and this is something that can be traced back almost directly to uh, Dick's complaint about what the legal academy has been up to. So that's what I had, I tried to do, and it was uh, a difficult project in the sense of knowing that the audience wanted something um, that I could give them, but at the same time I had to be fair to to the uh, to the subject. I mean, I'm talking about a judge as well as an intellectual, but talking about a judge, you have to give a sense of what they do on the bench, almost in a day-to-day -day fashion, and what really matters about their judging. So for Dick, it was really the issue of how he uh, views interpretation. So there's a recurring theme in the book of his approach to interpretation. And then, as I mentioned before, I wanted to track how he had handled the hand formula over the years, because it turned out that his colleagues in the Seventh Circuit weren't going to buy, they, they did not want to buy in, and they didn't buy into his application of the hand formula to the extent that he wanted it uh, applied, which was a pretty important idea because when he came to the bench, he came as this uh, uh, maverick academic, 
with this law and economics approach, and the court, the other members of the Seventh Circuit more or less said, no, it goes a little too far. So I'll let you talk now. <laughs> All right. You spoke a little bit uh, earlier about how um, you were actually inspired to write this book partly because Posner is still alive. Are there any struggles that you face because you are writing about a living individual? Are there any other advantages you can think of of writing about a living individual? Well, there's a, there's a frustration because you can't write uh, the final word on someone. I mean, Dick is going to be on the bench probably for another 10 years or so. I don't know if he has in mind uh, Holmes's uh, career where he went until he was about 90 and then he began to fail and then decided to leave the Supreme Court. He's now, see, he was born in 39, January 39, so uh, I guess he turned 78 in January. Uh, I don't know when he plans to leave, but my book isn't uh, the final word in his career because he still has some years uh, on the bench to go. So there was that frustration. There was uh, only a, a little bit of, of uh, uh, struggle within myself uh, Writing about someone that I've known for a long time. I, I've known him, I think, since 89 or 90 or something like that. A long time. Uh, not particularly close through most of the time, but I've been corresponding with him uh, for years and years. In fact, when I went through the archive, I was <laughs> kind of surprised to see how many of my letters were in the archive. But when you know somebody, especially when you think well of them, and I do, uh, there is that struggle when you want to say something when you feel compelled to say something that isn't particularly uh, complimentary. And with Dick, there, there was a streak about his, the uh, relationship to his personality, his sense of ego, to his career as an intellectual that I had to bring out, wanted to bring out, because it's important. And I didn't have any qualms about it in the end, because I had this feeling, I could be completely wrong, but I had this feeling that so long as you stay uh, faithful to the truth, uh, you can't be criticized, even by the person you're criticizing. And Dick is someone who has always, I think, uh, wanted people to follow the truth. He's always wanted lawyers to follow the truth, judges to follow the truth, as opposed to imposing uh, an intellectual or ideological agenda. I mean, this is one reason I don't think he thinks well of Scalia or Alito. They impose this, this ideology on their on their work that isn't particularly uh, intellectually honest, I would say. Uh, I'm not saying he's saying that, but that's what I would say. So I thought that uh, e even if he <laughs> at first was irritated with reading some of the things I was uh, saying, that he would want me to say these things if I believed them to be true. So that was a difficulty which, in the end, he helped me overcome by uh, his commitment to uh, intellectual honesty or intellectual integrity, however you want to phrase it. Now to Posner. Uh, what does his early life, his education, his mentors, and his upbringing tell us about who he is? Um, he has been or was a remarkable student. And I, I bring that up because uh, not only did he get highest grades wherever he went um, when he graduated first in his law school class. Yale at the time when he was there uh, didn't actually rank people at the end, but he, he did extremely, extremely well. I think he would have been if they ranked people in the top five. 
Um, he had always been a very good student, which meant that when he came across people who could teach him something, uh, whether you want to call it mentoring, I, I, I don't know, it doesn't really, uh, it's not really important, the, the label, but when people could teach him something, he really uh, brought all of his skills as a student to bear. And I'll give you two examples. One was Phil Elman. He was the uh, he was a uh, FCC commissioner when Dick was uh, in Washington. Right after his clerkship, he decided to go to the uh, FTC. I think I said FCC, the Federal Trade Commission, and he worked for him for uh, I think it was two years. And Elman had uh, he was a great writer, uh, and he was a very spirited uh, fellow. And Dick learned from him uh, how to be a better writer. In fact, again, this is something he he's talked about. The other uh, person who helped him a great deal was this uh, economist by the name of Aaron Director, who had been legendary uh, economist at the law and economics school at the University of Chicago. And he had actually retired from the University of Chicago and had moved to Palo Alto for the warm weather ice. When in 69, Dick, uh, or 68, Dick went to Stanford his first teaching job. And uh, he ran a director, and they uh, started up a friendship. The friendship uh, had all the, uh, the the markings or trappings of a uh, uh, teacher-pupil relationship because, as it turned out, not only was Dick a great student, but director was a famous, fabulous teacher. That was his his contribution to uh, education in law and economics, especially. He didn't write that much. He did write some, but he didn't write very much. But he uh, helped convert people. He helped actually explain how it all worked to people. And they would, in turn, tell other people, and they would proselytize that way. So when Posner went to Stanford, by great good fortune, he had uh, this small introduction to law and economics. He had read Ronald Coase's uh, uh, seminal article. And he went to uh, Stanford and runs into not just uh, director, but also uh, Bill Baxter, another uh, famous uh, economist. Uh, but it was director who uh, became the teacher. So I had this, this great good fortune to talk to the guy who was in the office next to Dick. This is at the Stanford Law School. And he told me that he could hear what was going on at Dick's office when Aaron Director would come over sometimes uh, two, three, four times a week. And he would sit in Dick's office for hours at a time, he said, and he would explain to Dick about law and economics. And Dick, who was a great typist, he had learned to type when he was, I think, 11 or 12, uh, was at his typewriter clattering away, taking it all down. So it was this this, uh, this eureka moment for a biographer to, to find out how it all started. So you have this great teacher with this great pupil, and the pupil just soaking up all of it. And that's what happened. So when Dick left Stanford, he went to Chicago, University of Chicago, where there were these other great uh, law and economics figures like George Stigler, uh, Ronald Coase. And from Stigler in particular, he uh, he learned a great deal. He was close to Stigler. He had some disagreements with Coase. I don't know how personal they were, but there was some disagreement. And Dick, in the end, of course, went off on his own path uh, when it came to that. But those are just two examples of... Uh, Phil Elman and then Ronald uh, Aaron Director, two examples of how Dick, being a great student, really learned a great deal and he assimilated all of that 
and became, in a way, a different kind of person uh, intellectually because of that. Could you talk about Posner's early career path, which you've touched on, uh, but particularly talk about his time clerking for Supreme Court Justice Brennan and how that led him to enter the academy? Well, it's, it's a funny thing. He uh, wasn't... <clears throat> I take him at his word when he says that clerking uh, uh, in the Supreme Court back then, this is the early 60s, he was there, as I mentioned, for the 62-63 term, um, wasn't that big a deal the way it is today. Today it's this, this uh, really intense competition from the elite law students at the elite uh, law schools to get a clerkship because being a Supreme Court law clerk opens up doors for the rest of a person's career. Um, but it wasn't a, a, that big a, a deal back then, apparently. So the story is that uh, Paul uh, Freund would uh, choose Brennan's law clerks. This is something Brennan did for quite a few years. I think he stopped in the mid-70s. Um, but he would, I guess you would say, delegate the uh, law clerk function to professors who would give him these recommendations. And actually, there were more than recommendations. They were, in effect, choosing so long as the person didn't screw up an interview, they would get the job. So he was asked if he wanted to clerk for Brennan because he was, as I said, the top student at Harvard, the Harvard Law School. And so he, he goes there. And what is remarkable about the time he was there, and I got this information both from, from Dick, but also from the other law clerk, uh, Robert O'Neill, who had a very, very distinguished career of his own. He ended up being the University of Virginia president. Um, very distinguished career. He also talked with maybe 10 or 12 law clerks for other justices during that time. So that was uh, also uh, interesting. But what was interesting was uh, seeing um, Dick in a different environment now. He's not in the law school where he had dominated. Uh, he was a dazzling, dazzling student. Um, this is what everyone says, not just the grades, but this is what everyone says. He actually uh, intimidated some of his professors. Uh, he goes there, and now he's in this new environment, and you get to see him reacting to it. And the great story that he uh, told me, it's in the book, was that uh, apparently the uh, Justice Brennan's secretary at the time, and actually I think he went on to marry this, so I've forgotten the name, uh, wasn't very fond of law clerks, according to Dick, and also Robert O'Neill, I think, Robert, and uh, didn't like typing up multiple drafts of opinions that the law clerks were writing, because Brennan was a justice, like many of them, who uh, didn't write his own opinions. He relied on his law So um, Posner was a little irritated that the uh, secretary didn't want to type multiple drafts of the opinions they were writing. So he decided that he would just write one draft. Now. The other law clerk confirmed that this was the case. He was someone who polished draft after draft his opinions. But the idea, when you go back and look at those opinions, to think that it was one draft, uh, it's just staggering to think that someone could have such um, uh, high quality uh, first time around. Now, I'm sure the first draft included all sorts of little revisions going into it. But it wasn't, as we know from writing the things that we write, something that went through multiple drafts. So they gave this glimpse, and this is, I guess, the point of the story, 
is that it gave this glimpse of the uh, gifts that he had. And he does. He, had these, he has these remarkable gifts of composition. That's the way I, I term it. That uh, Things kind of just click in his head, and what comes out uh, doesn't need a whole lot of revision. One of his law clerks told me that half of the opinions uh, come from Dick's computer and go right into the Federal Reporter once they add a few citations. Uh, and the other half get reworked. Uh, but that's simply a gift to be able to uh, write that way. I don't know if you can do it. I know I can't do it. Um, I once wrote a piece. It was one of the first things I ever wrote, uh, an article about Thomas Wolfe that uh, sat down and it just all came out, one draft. Uh, but I've never been able to do that again. But he does it all the time. Um, and it's just a, it's, it's a, a gift of composition that he has. Um, so seeing him in this environment, which meant that he was absolutely, in a way that's hard to describe, absolutely fearless when it came to, this is my work, this is going to be good enough for Supreme Court justice, one draft. And that's something that you can see, the tone of it, um, continues through everything that he writes. If you were to look at the stuff he wrote in the 70s, it is just suffused with this tone of confidence, which he then later, when he went to the bench, uh, brought to the bench and brought to his judicial opinions. So he didn't go right from a clerkship to uh, practice. He didn't want to practice, so he went to the uh, Federal Trade Commission, and then he went to the Solicitor General's office, where he was uh, an appellate advocate for a couple of years. I think he argued seven or eight cases in the Supreme Court. And then he worked for a year in the uh, commission that President Johnson had set up on telecommunications. And he had met, at that time, uh, uh, a couple of uh, very fine economists who helped him see uh, that almost all problems could be solved by economics. And it was with that uh, uh, background that he went to Stanford and uh, ran into Aaron Director, who was able to say, expand everything in, in scope and in depth. But there was interesting one interesting point about uh, going to Stanford. Uh, he had been a uh, Dick had been a pretty uh, confident. Uh, I don't think he would say arrogant, but he was a very very confident uh, law student. And apparently, this rubbed a few people the wrong way. And one person that rubbed the wrong way was the dean, Irwin Griswold, who taught a tax course that uh, Posner took. And as Posner uh, told me, there was some sneering involved. He thought that, that Griswold was a terrible teacher. So he openly sneered at Griswold. And Griswold had this, because he was the dean, he had this uh, connection to the law review, uh, a deep connection to the law review. And because Dick was the president of the uh, law review, he had this ongoing uh, uh, exchange with him. And it came out all the time that Griswold did not like him. So later, when he applied to Stanford, people at Stanford, and I heard this from, I think, either three or four people who were uh, on the hiring committee, um, Stanford uh, got a letter. I don't even think they asked for Griswold to weigh in, but they got a letter from Erwin Griswold telling them that they should not hire Dick. <laughs> That's how deep the, uh, the uh, resentment ran, or the grudge ran, from Griswold to Posner. And as it turned out, Griswold finally came around. So I got a letter from him. I talked to him uh, in the 90s, and then I got a letter from him. And he uh, changed his view completely and thought the world would dick. So I guess all grudges in the end die away. But that's what happened, and I thought it was a pretty funny story. Moving 
to his time at the University of Chicago. How did Posner enter the University of Chicago with, I would say, a, a mission to proselytize for an economic analysis of law? And how did he carry out that mission? One of the great things about uh, the archive that I was able to uh, work with was that there were letters going back to uh, the 70s. He actually has a couple of letters. I quote them in the book where he talks about it being a mission, that he is proselytizing. So he had this, uh, I don't know if he would agree that it was a strategy, but he had worked out, um, I think, a plan of action to get people to uh, understand how it worked and then to, uh, uh, to, to believe that this was the way to go, that law and economics should place, should be in the forefront of all legal analysis. So the first thing he did was write uh, this uh, seminal book, Economic Analysis of Law. Uh, the story is, it's hard to believe that this is true, uh, and it, but it is, he told me. So I have no reason to doubt it, and other people confirmed uh, uh, the essential facts. He wrote it over a summer, the Economic Analysis of Law, which I think in the first edition was something like 400 pages. I have the first one on my shelf, I hope I find a uh, pristine copy of it. Um, which looked at all the areas of law, uh, and this was the first time it's ever been done. Law and economics had essentially been, been confined to things like antitrust, regulatory issues. But here for the first time, law and economics is being applied to every aspect of law. So you would have it in contract, you would have it in tort. There, there had been work in tort, uh, in torts. That wasn't the first time, but he had the most comprehensive look at it. Um, this entire array of uh, subject of law, he, he exposed to economic analysis to show that the common law, it was all built on uh, the common law, that uh, it all was driven by um, an economic analysis that judges might not even be, might not even know that they're conducting, but they're conducting it nonetheless, which is always asking the question of what's the most efficient outcome. So he writes the book, and then he, he works on a, a publication strategy he published with Little Brown uh, to get as many people as possible to look at the book. So he does that successfully. He then starts his journal uh, at the University of Chicago, which was uh, a rival journal of sorts to the one that uh, Aaron, I mean, uh, Ronald Coase was was editing. So Dix is called the uh, Journal of Legal Studies. And he had, with, with Coase's essentially uh, suggestions, started the journal up. And he decided in the journal to publish all these articles that uh, brought economic analysis to not only the subjects, but also the process of law. So he did that. And then he wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about economic analysis where he took on um, in a more popular form, some of his uh, pet peeves. One was the uh, Federal Trade Commission. One was uh, the antitrust uh, division and its enforcement uh, mechanism. And he tried to show in all of these articles that they weren't working and that we either should just give up on them or reshape them completely to ask the question of what's the most efficient way to get all this information processed and then uh, analyzed. He also, uh, in addition to writing a great deal, would uh, go on the road, so to speak. So he would go to countless conferences. And one of the things I do in the book is I actually show how often he was on the road 
to give talks at uh, various two various groups about economic analysis. And the last thing that he did was he had this direct uh, concrete application of law in economics or economic analysis, which is to say that he started up a uh, consulting company with uh, um, Bill Landis, who was a professor at the University of Chicago and also uh, another fellow, uh, Andy Rosenthal. And they, I think I have to do set up this consulting company that applied economic analysis to problems when law firms would come to them and say, we need an analysis of this or that for our antitrust litigation or whatever it was. So we did a lot of that. In fact, in the book, I talk about these actual real-world applications of economic analysis were applied to regulatory issues, all kinds of things, antitrust regulatory issues. He also testified in front of Congress lots of times um, when law and economics came up with legal or economic analysis. So the combination of those four or five factors all came together for this, this, this enormous push from him to get others on his own faculty, because he was very busy in his own faculty trying to get people to teach more courses. They, he wanted them to hire more professors with an economic uh, analysis bent. Uh, so in his own place, he was doing it. He was pushing uh, for more uh, economic professors just generally. Uh, all these things came together with his, um, or for his, his uh, attempt to get people to see law differently. That's really what it was about, to see law differently and to see the significance of this tool which, if applied, could help solve a lot of problems. So there. How did this law and economics movement that Posner was a large part of align with the Reagan administration? And how did this impact Posner's career? Well, certainly this, all the stuff he was, many of the things he was writing during the 70s um, um, addressed issues that were dear to um, the Reagan folks. The uh, principal one would be uh, when it came to dismantling regulation. So he had written many articles about that, so it was right up the rally. Uh, also, the, uh, I think she would say, the expansive view he had of antitrust and how you really, you had to have a damn good reason to uh, impose antitrust restrictions, fed right into what uh, the Reagan folks wanted. And in fact, the Reagan folks on the uh, judicial selection side were run by the fellow named Bill Baxter that Dick had met when he was at the Stanford Law School in the 68, 69 year. And they actually remained close over, over the years. And when Baxter was asked to uh, find some uh, good candidates for circuit judgeships, one, uh, candidates who had academic experience and who, who favored the uh, agenda, I guess you would say, use that as a shorthand description, the agenda of the Reagan uh, administration, uh, one of the first people he turned to, Baxter, that is, was, was Posner. Uh, Frank Easterbrook was another. Uh, Robert Bork was another. Ralph Winter from Yale was another. There were a number of these folks. So that is a direct consequence of his interest in uh, the subjects and the approach that the Reagan folks liked. And once he was on the bench, um, he uh, did a few things that I think were, were very pleasing to the Reagan Folks. One was an approach he took to prisoner litigation, where guys who were in jail were trying to get out, or they're complaining about the treatment that they're they're getting, the being beaten up by guards or whatever, or being ill and not getting proper medical care. And Dick took a very forceful uh, and very narrow view of 
the relief that should be granted to prisoners. Now, this is all rather ironic because as the years uh, rolled on, he changed his view. So now he's one of the more liberal uh, judges, I think it's fair to say, in the Seventh Circuit when it comes to when a prisoner should have a, uh, a lawyer appointed, for instance, to carry his civil claims into court. So that's something that uh, it was dear to the Reagan folks. But of course, all judges, when they are new to the bench, are confined by what's happened before. And there's not a whole lot you can do that just changes everything. But one of the things that Dick did, as I've uh, mentioned a couple of times, is try to apply wherever he could, not only the hand formula, but the sensibility of economic analysis. And one of the things he started doing in the 80s was using the vocabulary of economic analysis as often as he could. And he would set out, in his opinions, all the, the uh, scholarly research, research, all the scholarly articles that would apply to the different subjects he was, he was talking about. So if someone wanted to learn more, if other judges reading his opinions wanted to learn more about economic analysis, he was telling them where to go. So that's one of the things he wanted to do was to help educate other judges by showing them how it worked. Right. So how does Judge Posner approach a case? Well, he says, this is, uh, <laughs> he says he, uh, he, he gets it and he decides for himself what the good result should be and then figure out whether anything in the law blocks it. That's kind of a startling approach, but that's what he says he does. In fact, he, he said it in, in an article, and I quote this in the introduction to the book. Um, but keep in mind that everything he writes, uh, aside from uh, motions where he's the, the motion judge, Everything he writes is a function of either a three-judge panel or a uh, en banc panel. So it's not as though, and this is what the, the great misconception about anyone writing about judging um, recognizes, that people think that judges go in there and simply do what they want. So when they say that uh, Posner speaking for the court said this or that, it's not as though he's just doing it on his own. Two other people at the panel have to read it and say, yes, I'll go along with it. Or they say, no, I won't go along with it. And they concur or they dissent. Uh, but it's always a function of the other judges. And it's a function of, of course, the case law and what the parties have presented. So to the extent that those are um, governing forces, uh, he works within that. But he's always trying to, to um, uh, I guess the, the cliche is push the envelope. And that applies to him. So um, there's a tradition, and I was really fortunate. I had a prior relationship with a uh, federal judge by the name of Bruce Selya, who was a really gifted writer. I had written about him a long time ago, and I, I talked to him about, about Posner and about circuit judging. And he told me this, this fabulous story um, about the first case he uh, wrote as a uh, judge on the Court of Appeals. Now, at that time, he was a district judge sitting by designation, but that's kind of a detail. And on his panel the, for that first case was a uh, very, very distinguished D.C. Circuit judge, also sitting by designation, and then a, uh, a judge of the First Circuit. And Sully is uh, assigned to uh, write the opinion, and he, as is, as is his want, um, throws in three or four uh, examples of exotic vocabulary. He's always done that his entire career, uh, exotic vocabulary. And one of the judges, not the D.C. judge, but the other one, 
the first circuit judge, objected to it and told Celia that he wanted him to cut it out, that he wanted to excise the, uh, the language. And so he didn't want to. And they went to, I think it was uh, McGowan, I the first name, the DC judge, really well-respected fellow at the end of his career, sitting by designation. And McGowan says, no, that's not the way it works. The person writing the opinion has the right to impose his sense of style, language, approach, to an opinion. So unless there's something wildly, wildly wrong with the approach, and there are some opinions where you wonder whether the other judges shouldn't have stepped in, um, the authoring judge should get his way. So, and he did. So the other guy backed off and so you got uh, into the opinion, the, the language, the exotic vocabulary that he wanted. So this is a real good example of how the other judges on Dick's court, because of this, this nature of this tradition, aren't going to uh, uh, haggle with him over minor details. They're going to go along generally with his approach, which has allowed him, Posner that is, to come up with an almost, I shouldn't say almost, it is, an unprecedented approach to opinion writing. It's not quite a stream of consciousness, but close to it. He actually wants, and this is my take on it, he wants you to know what's going on in his head as he works through the problem. And one of the ways we know that is this, this really small detail I'll be able to figure out, which is that, and there's, you have to find a way to, to get this information, which I was lucky to, to do. He used the exclamation point, or mark, in his opinions more than 700 times. And it's not because the, uh, the case caption has the exclamation mark in it, like, uh, ETV or something like that, or Yahoo would be. It's that, it's a mark of his uh, emotional response to the case. So it's kind of like raising an eyebrow when he has an exclamation mark most of the time. So he's done it more than 700 times. Now that matters because I studied or looked at the opinions of, say, 20 different judges, including people like Learned Hand and Henry Friendly. And I couldn't find one that used it more than half a dozen times in an entire career. And Friendly himself had used it, I think, twice. Maybe just once. So there's something very different about this approach of using the uh, punctuation mark, which is describing an emotional response. So this is an indication of when Dick comes across something in his writing of the uh, the opinion, and he wants you to know that he thinks something's curious about this, or how odd, or he wants to make some sort of critical judgment about something, he uses the mark. This is how we know, in part, uh, aside from all the other ways of, uh, of communicating to the reader that he wants the reader to follow him. This is one way we know that the opinions are a function of his interest in revealing the uh, uh, thinking process that he's going through as he writes the opinion. So he approaches the opinions like everyone else, that is to say they get the briefs and they listen to argument. He has become uh, sometimes, in big cases, really aggressive in argument, where he's trying to reshape the nature of the argument so it gets away from precedent and moves towards, and this is dramatic, dramatic move, away from precedent moves towards the idea of, well, what makes the most sense? Now, the law doesn't ask that question, at least not directly. It asks other questions, such as what does precedent tell us we should do? But he's asking the question, for instance, the, uh, uh, the gay marriage case that came out of uh, Indiana, 
I'm, yeah, Indiana and Wisconsin, or the abortion case that came out of uh, Wisconsin, he's asking that question, well, what makes the most sense? And when people, that is the lawyers, are saying stupid things, things that just run counter to, to what we know is true in the world, he'll say, that makes no sense. How can you possibly say that? So that's his approach to a sense of, uh, uh, what you call fundamental justice that no other judge these days is, uh, is doing. And he goes beyond that because he's calling out, I guess is the phrase, the cliche or the slang, he's calling out uh, justices of the Supreme Court who hide behind ideology or what they call to be, uh, say, is originalist thinking or whatever, uh, originalist interpretation, uh, into saying, let's be honest about this. So, Going back to the very beginning, or near the beginning, when you asked me about writing about uh, the book, um, let's be honest about this, is what he's saying all the time. So if I'm writing about him, I have to be honest about what I'm writing about, or I have the freedom to be honest about what I'm writing about. And he doesn't like, I don't think, this, this idea of uh, law papering over common sense, papering over what we know should happen. Uh, and he's breaking that down. So. I wrote about a couple of cases where he seemed to want to cut out the lawyers altogether as advocates. And he actually, he has said in an interview that he wanted to take this, an extraordinary statement, take down the adversary process a notch. What an extraordinary thing for a judge to say. But that's where he is. Maybe it's because he's on the other side of 75 now. I, I don't know exactly why, but there's this push. It's been going on for a few years now. This real push to be honest about law. So when it comes to the way law is written, that is the language, he wants it to be as plain as possible, as simple as possible. That's one of the things of the book, uh, simplicity in, in, in law. Um, this is all stuff that he's bringing when he sits down to work on a case. So um, there's no easy answer or short answer to the question of how he approaches cases, except to say that he wants to bring his sense of, of law um, as it is and as and as it is written to what he's doing. That's what I would say. By the way, this is just wonderful fun for me to be able to talk about the book. So <laughs> if, I, if I ramble on, it's because I just don't have much of a chance to talk about the things that really, in a way, mattered for me for two or three years as I wrote about this book, or wrote the book. Well, I'm enjoying listening to it, so don't feel like you're rambling. <laughs> Talking about how he has, I would call it a fairly unique approach to writing a case. How have his opinions been received by circuit court judges? Well, that's a, uh, it's a wonderful question, and it's one that I really set out to answer or try to answer in, in the book, because uh, other circuit judges, and of course district judges as well, and then added to that the Supreme Court, um, that's a marketplace. And as I said, I wanted to have this marketplace theme. So what I found out, and something that everyone has known for a long time, which is that uh, uh, He's been the most cited judge by far. In fact, I use, I think I use in the book or in one of the drafts, I use the phrase that he's the, I think it's in the book, the, the Wayne Gretzky of uh, appellate judging. Now, you have to go back to the 80s and early 90s, I think, for Wayne, to know about Wayne Gretzky when it came to what he did in the NHL. And for a, a number of years, the first part of his career, not only would he lead the league in, say, points, he would double the point totals of his nearest competitor. That's how great Wayne Gretzky was. No one was really on the same level with him. And when it comes to influence, 
by way of citation counts. Uh, that's what Posner has been. He's uh, more than doubled for, for many years the, the uh, number of citations that you would find if you, if you searched with circuit judges. But the thing is that when circuit judges use him, cite to him, and they're awfully uh, uh, very, very willing to say why they're using him. We're talking about what a smart analysis, what a sharp analysis, clearly written or elegantly stated. Or they have all kinds of ways of showing uh, not just but not just by the citation itself, but by the, the descriptive language, why they're using him. When they use him, it's not because of uh, uh, economic analysis, which, as I said before, he's trying to bring into all the opinions that he can. Um, it's not because of that. Uh, though the book, Economic Analysis of the Law, has been cited, I think, something like 150 times, which is uh, pretty impressive. Uh, it's because of the way he handles everyday issues, the things that all, always come before the court. Uh, the courts, the jurisdictional issues, all kinds of just nuts and bolts things. How to read a statute. He's there with a very sound, if not insightful approach. And the other judges say, after struggling on their own to come up with the answer, say, yeah, he's got it right. Yeah, that's who's that. That, in a way, is the effect that he's had. The other thing I did, and uh, my thanks go out to the uh, West Publishing people, West Law people, because I had this idea that I wanted to know, uh, not just by name, because one of the things I do in the book is I talk about how often I use the name, that is the citation that says Posner J, or in the text, uh, Judge Posner. That's different from a regular citation, which doesn't have any uh, uh, authorship connection. <clears throat> so I, I, I detail all of that to show that it's a twice as significant or as common as, uh, or it's twice as frequent as anyone else. But I wanted to find out uh, the extent of his just general influence. And one of the things you uh, get familiar with in, in, as a lawyer is using the headnotes that uh, the key numbers and headnotes that West uh, cases have. And most people, once they get the uh, the key number, and the, they they just track the key number to see how they can find it in other cases, and that becomes the line of precedence that you want to use. I mean, West has been a spectacular, has had a spectacular contribution to law in America because of this. It's, it's changed the way people uh, research. So I wanted to find out about those headnotes that uh, Dick wrote in, I shouldn't say wrote, but the headnotes that are extracted from his opinions by the West uh, editor. And I, what I should do is have an opinion up here and showing you, but I, I don't have one right now. So what I had to, to do was get numbers that are not uh, available to the public. I mean, I can go and run all kinds of searches on Westlaw, but I can't get what I want that way because it's not available. Now. So I called up the people at West. And I don't think I had to plead too much. They were keen to do it because they understood uh, the significance of Posner. They understood, I guess you would say, the project. And I asked them if they would do some things for me, if they would use their computers to how often other judges have tapped into, so to speak, the head notes that appear in Dick's opinions. And they had to spend a few hundred hours, they told me, uh, coding all these things because it wasn't something that was just directly accessible to them. They had to spend all this time doing this, and they did it. And then they ran searches on, on uh, Posner, Easterbrook, and three or four other judges that I asked them to run on, Learned Hand, Henry Friendly, 
Harvey Wilkinson and the Fourth Circuit, and they came back with the numbers. And it was exactly as I expected, which was that he, in a Wayne Gretzky fashion, had made his way into something like 12,000 opinions. And his nearest competitor was something like four or 5,000. I don't have the book in front of me, so I don't have the number. But it, it was, uh, wasn't even close. Again, the Wayne Gretzky idea. So that showed not just the influence of Posner in a relational way, or relative way to other judges, but uh, in an absolute way. So we can now say that he's made his way into 12,000 headnotes. It's pretty impressive stuff. Now, part of it, of course, is just longevity. Longevity plus the fact that he writes uh, an opinion for almost every case that is assigned to him. Now, you don't have to publish every opinion that you write. I mean, there are lots of unpublished opinions. And in fact, if uh, you look at the Ninth Circuit, where I'm from, uh, they publish relatively few of their opinions. Uh, so a judge out here, uh, I was talking to a judge recently who told me that last year he published 25 opinions. Well, every year Dick publishes about 100. That's because he has about 100 cases assigned to him, and he writes an opinion for each case. And that actually is a reflection of his ability to see something that's interesting in the case. And not all judges have that gift to, to see what's interesting. So you have longevity, more than 30 years now, he's going to be on the almost 35 years, uh, 3,300 opinions. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, dissemination of his his ideas just because of those two factors. But when you add to that the, the power of the influence that uh, uh, goes with it, the, the willingness of other judges to want to use these these Posner ideas, uh, that's how you end up with these Wayne Gretzky numbers. Just, I'd be very interested to know if Wayne Gretzky has any idea about uh, Posner, whether they have, because they have this thing in common, but that's just me. Coming from the other direction, how has the Supreme Court viewed Posner's opinions? And <clears throat> um, how does Posner view the Supreme Court? Well, the, 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 the second part of the question is easily answered because he's been on, it's almost a tirade, um, about the Supreme Court, not just generally, but also about particular justices. So he had this well-known uh, feud, I think it was a one-sided feud, but there was a feud going on with Justice Scalia a few years ago when Scalia came out with a book on interpretation that he uh, wrote with Brian Garner. Um, Slate every year, uh, the end of May, beginning of June, will run these roundtables where they have three or four recognized uh, experts in, in law talk about the Supreme Court's last term because the Supreme Court's final opinions come out the end of May, beginning of June. Uh, and Dick has taken um, those roundtable discussions um, as an occasion to, to blast away at the Supreme Court. Not just particular uh, decisions, but the court generally he's complained about or pointed out that they uh, don't work very hard. That they, uh, there's this inverse relationship between the number of law clerks they have and the number of opinions that they, they write. Uh, in the old days, if you went back to the 60s, it would be uh, cranking out 150 opinions a, a year, the Supreme Court. And now it's uh, 75 or so. So he complains about that. He complains about the quality. He complains about the, uh, and I think all of these are justified uh, complaints. Um, the quality of the opinions, that is to say, how well they're written. They're all well written, but they're not uh, readable uh, in the sense that they're not things that we want to read. And they can be, as he's been showing us for all these years. So he complains about that. He complains about particular justices, Scalia. 
he, uh, he explains a lot about uh, Roberts, not only his uh, his opinions, but also the way he manages the court. He complains about Alito. Uh, in fact, we, Bozner uh, uh, and I did a, a bookstore event uh, in October in Chicago. It was uh, covered by C-SPAN, so it got a fair amount of attention. And he took that um, event. It was uh, Dick, myself, and a fellow from the University of Chicago Law School, Tom Ginsburg, asking those questions. He took that occasion to uh, blast away at the uh, Supreme Court justices and how he said only two were qualified, and even then they were only moderately qualified. The ones that are moderately qualified are uh, are uh, Ginsburg and Breyer, and the others he apparently believes are not qualified. One of the things he thinks is important um, is, is uh, having some trial experience, mostly as a judge. Uh, and actually, sort of my ear has it, but he didn't. Uh, I don't think very much of her. So anyway, he's taking this occasion to just blast away at, at them. Um, but of course, he respects their opinions in a real sense. He follows the president. So it's not as though he's this uh, rogue circuit judge just doing what he wants. He doesn't. He follows the opinions. Uh, the Supreme Court, on the other hand, uh, has uh, affirmed him about half the time and rejected him about half the time. So I think there have been about 30 cases that have gone from his court, the Seventh Circuit, to review by the uh, Supreme Court. And I think about, about half and half. And when they follow him, they, they often like his analysis and sometimes will quote him uh, very, uh, in a very flattering way. The new court, though, that is to say, the changes in personnel over the last 10 or 15 years um, doesn't seem as fond uh, of him, especially when it comes to his approach to interpretation, which is more of a common sense, pragmatic view of interpretation. So even liberal justices, not just the uh, Alito and Scalia and Thomas, but even some of the liberal ones have found fault with his his pragmatic interpretations of various statutes, um, and he's been slapped down a couple of times. Uh, and I think it was pointedly so. I think they were trying to to make a statement. So he's uh, done about average. I think the uh, Seventh Circuit, on average, is uh, 50-50, that is, half get reversed, half get uh, uh, reversed, half get affirmed. Um, so in that sense, there's nothing unusual about it. It's the way that they treat his uh, his approaches. So, for instance, in uh, one case, uh, Scalia goes out of his way to essentially not talk about what below that his uh, Posner had done, which is kind of a, uh, a slap in his own way. So that's the, the short answer to that is that he's had some luck, but he's also been pushed back a number of times by the Supreme Court. You uh, mentioned this earlier, uh, but could you talk a little bit more about Posner's views on legal education and legal academics? Right. Um, it started, I found something that he wrote in 72 for the uh, law school paper, I guess you would call it where some uh, enterprising law student writing the paper uh, asked him what he thought about legal education. And what he said was that the purpose of it was to train lawyers, give them the tools to handle the stuff that came in their office. And I actually talked with some of the students that Dick had back then, uh, and I quote one or two of them in the book, and he would make a, a real strong point about how the point of legal education wasn't to uh, um, 
feeling abstractions or even to uh, be prepared for the bar exam. It was to learn how to solve problems. And that's why he was pushing this uh, economic analysis all the time. But it was this idea that lawyers had to know how to analyze what came through the door. Beginning in the 70s, these uh, interdisciplinary trends began to develop in, in law schools, uh, legal education, so law and. Now, law and economics is a little different than all the rest of them, but they would have law and, uh, you could say, uh, sociology, law and psychiatry, all kinds of law and. And one of the things that, that triggered all the uh, uh, powerful reaction the Posner had was law and literature uh, movement, which, uh, I mean, I, I studied literature a little bit. I, I have a little understanding of it. It was misguided from the beginning, I thought. And Dick actually wrote a book called, about law and literature where he explained it. Well, it was all misguided. And this fit into his general approach where he was saying that law schools, law professors, had drifted away from their, their, their charge, what they were supposed to be doing, which was educating, helping the bar and the judiciary. And they did this primarily through doctrinal analysis in, in their articles. And they don't do that very much at all, and especially as you go up the uh, elite ladder, you find it less and less. You find it done less and less, I should say. So he's been complaining about um, that generally, and I think rightly so. He's been complaining recently in, in a powerful way about the, uh, I guess you would say, the profile of new law professors and how they have even less uh, legal experience than they did before. I think now the typical path is to have a couple of years working in a large firm after clerking for someone, and then you go and you start teaching. Uh, my view is completely consistent with this, and uh, from my point of view, the two years you spend as an associate in a big firm doesn't really qualify as practicing law because, for the most part, you never deal with clients. You're just writing memos uh, for your you know, supervisors, either senior associates or, or partners. So the gap between professors who, who uh, the gap between what we have now and what we had at one point, that is, professors who understood uh, the nature of practice, um, is, is just been growing wider and wider. So he actually used the example of a fellow at Harvard, I think his name is Benjamin Kaplan, who um, went to teaching after 15 years of practicing law. And Dick and something he wrote recently, I think, says that's the way it should be. You should really understand about the practice of law. So <clears throat> judges, not just Dick, who takes it on frontally and, and really powerfully, but other judges have been complaining. So you see articles every now and then from judges talking about the irrelevancy of legal education. I shouldn't say, should not legal education, but what law professors are writing. And there have been articles talking about how uh, the frequency with which law review articles are cited in, say, the Supreme Court opinion has been going down steadily over the years. So the question is, well, what are they good for? That's the question that I would ask, and I think Dick has been asking the same question. What are they good for? If they're not teaching or are trying to help the bar and the judiciary, what's the point of it? And you could trace it back uh, 100 years to the interests of the bar to be more like, uh, or law schools, to be more like uh, university departments. Uh, but, of course, the law is not like English. When I studied English, when I got my PhD, it wasn't just for the fun of it. It was more serious than that. But there was an understanding that you weren't trying to change the world. You weren't trying to affect the world in any significant way aside from teaching classes. But lawyers, they affect the world. The law affects the way people live. 
But what law professors are doing, some would say, uh, really has no connection to that. So um, another mark of this was that many of the uh, critical theories that English professors were using and still use were being adopted by, or adopted and adapted by, by uh, law professors to no good purpose in the sense of they weren't being, they weren't, they had no application to what was going on in the courtroom or into a lawyer's office. And going back to the beginning, the question is, well, what are they there for that is law professors? And the standard answer has been to teach or to help the judiciary and the bar, and they're not doing that. Could you talk about Posner as a public intellectual? Yes, he's actually uh, had an interesting career arc in, in that uh, capacity, public intellectual. And then he is known as a public intellectual, not just because of his own contributions, but because of the book he wrote in, I think it was 2002, called Public Intellectual, where he tried to sort through what public intellectuals are doing and make some sort of judgment about whether they're doing it very well. His conclusion was that they were not doing it well, that they often uh, started opining on subjects that they had no expertise in, and that they were often wrong and not held accountable. So that's one of the things uh, the book is about. As a public intellectual himself, he uh, has an interesting, as I mentioned, career arc, so that he was doing academic writing uh, in the 70s and the 80s. And then his books began to change a little bit um, in the 90s, and towards the end of the 90s, they changed dramatically. So the first real example of this is his book on the Clinton impeachment, which came out, I think, in 1999 or 2000, which was a, uh, uh, I don't know what bestseller means, but it sold a lot of copies. Uh, so it, it kind of demonstrated this this uh, this uh, change in audience. It wasn't just uh, academic types, scholarly types. It was now more general public reading stuff. So he then followed that with a book on the uh, contested 2000 election, which again went to a wide audience where he tried to uh, explain what happened and explain why, while the result could be justified, it wasn't really done as well as it could have been done. And as a more important point, uh, the judges should have been far more honest, and the justices far more honest in describing just what it is they were doing. Because one of the marks of this Pragmatic approach, to, pragmatic approach to judging is being honest about what you're doing. And he didn't think the Supreme Court was being very honest about it. So then in the uh, aughts, as they call them, between 2000 and 2010, he wrote a series of books about uh, uh, national security um, and also about the economy. So that when we had, the, use one example, the uh, economic downturn in 2007 or 2008, whenever it was, he wrote a series of books trying to explain to the general public what was really going on. Because he believed, uh, he says this explicitly in uh, the introduction to one of the books, that that kind of uh, explicator was needed and that we simply weren't getting that kind of thing from um, uh, the writing on the, uh, on the crisis. So he wrote three or four books and then they kind of stopped. Uh, in, in 2010, he went back to more traditional academic books and I don't think he's had a, uh, uh, a book on a more uh, pressing uh, general issue since then. Um, I kind of argue or explain or suggest that uh, he wanted to uh, affect, have more of an effect on uh, 
the general population, um, the electorate, and they weren't particularly interested. And that's why he stopped writing. Uh, the, the three books on the economy, three, maybe four, they were written almost as though they were uh, memos to the president. This is what you should be doing. This is what it is. This is what's happened. This is where we're going. And this is what you should do. And it's almost as though uh, they just didn't get that warmer reception. They weren't reviewed as widely as earlier books. And uh, he has more or less stopped writing that kind of book. Why do you write that Richard Posner has always been a writer first and a lawyer second? Well, <clears throat> He, he's talked about that in his, his letters. I, I include a lot of them in the uh, in the book. Um, part of it is what I mentioned just a moment ago: this this desire to explicate. explicate. Um, it's a powerful desire that he has, and, and it shows up all the time. So not only in his opinions is he analyzing law, he's explaining law. Um, he really likes that. And the thing about explicating, explaining things, is that there's the connection between the, the writer and the audience, where you have to really anticipate what does the audience need uh, right now, what they, what do they need next, and you respond to what the audience uh, needs. So he's, he's had that, I think, foremost in his mind as a writer. Even when he was writing the, the, the academic things about economic analysis, he was teaching the, the reader about the, the subject. So what I'm suggesting is that there's there's a real interest on his side in the authorial voice. He, he wants to have this connection, and he brings it, as I was saying uh, uh, a while ago, to the opinions where it's, it's almost almost a stream of consciousness uh, approach to things. Law is about, in the end, my humble view, law in the end is about how people live, and it's not uh, something that. Uh, uh, we all have these, these almost gut feelings about. We know right and wrong when we, when we encounter it. We know what justice and injustice uh, what they are. Um, it's not a technical thing. It's not a technical thing, law. Uh, it can't be, because people get together in a room. People were elected by other people. Get together in a room, and they vote on something, a statute. I mean, they're creating law. Um, they're just people. Judges, when they create the common law, are just people. It's not as though there are scientific principles out there uh, that they have to apply. There are these neutral things that go beyond the the, uh, the people in charge of making decisions and opinions and legislation. So law is a very human, very, very human uh, activity. And in that sense, it has this great, powerful connection to literature itself, which is just about how people live. So I've always thought that when he's writing about the world as he finds it, He's not writing as a novelist, of course, or uh, a journalist, but there's something of the uh, um, observer in him that's looking at it and explaining what's happening. And it's not because, I don't have this, this view of him as a writer just because he uses uh, literary, literary illusions. He uses more than probably anyone else. It's not just because of that. That is an important thing, because it talks about a sensibility he has. That when the problem comes up, he's somehow or sometimes able to connect it to something that's in literature. Um, there are judges who uh, use them all as uh, ornaments, literary illusions as ornaments. He doesn't uh, do that. Um, it's something that he really, I think, is is making this 
this statement all the time about the connection between light and law and how close they are. Um, and that's what the writer in him is seeing. So 100 years ago, 130 years ago, whenever it was, the emphasis uh, was the law as science. This is what Langdell at the Harvard Law School came up with, that you read judicial opinions, these appellate opinions, and extract principles, and that's the way you teach, and this leads, of course, to the Socratic method and all this kind of nonsense. Um, but the law is not a science. It simply isn't. And one reason we know that is that half of the law, at least, is legislation. And there's no science to that. It, I mean, that's horse trading. So half of what Langdell did doesn't have any application in it because, as I said, it's not common law that we're dealing with most of the time. So law is not the scientific thing, and that's why the people who pretend that they can somehow, at a step removed, see what's really happening, uh, and isolate, extract the, these neutral principles, and apply law are, are wrong. Law, in the end, is always a human process. And that's why people like, from my view, people like Scalia and Alito are, uh, and Thomas are, are, in a way, making fools of us because they're trying to tell us something that we know is not true. We know it's not true that they sit as these objective neutral judges. They don't. They sit as human beings with predispositions like everybody else. And they don't want to admit it. Posner, on the other hand, wants to admit it, and he wants to engage in all the things that go into judging. That's what pragmatism is all about. So when I say he's a writer first, what I'm getting at is the idea that, um, first of all, it's this, this, this uh, contrast, as opposed to a lawyer, because he's acknowledging, I think, these values that are, in a way, uh, anti-legal values. If you see legal values as being scientific or neutral, because uh, I don't think they are. So he has a sensibility, which he brings to everything, which is infused with all the, the processes of law. At the same time, it's overridden or governed by, more generally, this idea of people, the way they live, the way they interact, and what makes the most sense. That's why, to go back to what I was saying a while ago, he seems on this push, this really powerful push, when he's asking these hapless lawyers about what they think about something. And oral argument, say the gay rights uh, case, the gay uh, uh, rights case from Indiana and Wisconsin, he's asking them, well, what makes the most sense? That's a whole different approach to, to what law is. And I think to articulate it, you have to have a sensibility that's just not rooted in what we generally consider to be this, this uh, objective, uh, scientific understanding of what law is. Now, by the way, I've never actually tried to write it out. That is why I think he's a writer first and a lawyer second. But that's what I think. To conclude, uh, I'd love to know what you're working on now. Well, I, I would have said until two days ago that, uh, that uh, I haven't even told my wife this. Um, I've been writing a book for the last uh, year or so about uh, lawyers and the profession called, uh, I want to call it, Lawyers, you got to love them. Because the, the core of the legal profession is this, is this audaciousness, this chutzpah that is breathtaking, where lawyers at bottom try to persuade us that what they do is special. There's nothing special about it. There's no such thing 
as uh, thinking like a lawyer. Uh, that's one of the great myths that they've somehow uh, been able to persuade us is true. Um, and I say this as a guy who's been doing it for almost 35 years. Next year is 35 years for me. Uh, yeah, no, 34 years. Um, they, they wanted us to think that they're special in the way they think and the language they use, and there's none of that. So I'm trying to write a book that kind of debunks the profession until about two days ago, which uh, uh, in two days ago, I, I stumbled across uh, something I wrote when I was, yeah, I'm 63 now. I wrote it when I think I was 38. I was uh, practicing law in Connecticut, and I started a novel. And it was about a, uh, a young, handsome uh, lawyer in rural Connecticut, kind of like myself, I guess, um, and his, uh, his, his experiences. I'm joking, of course, uh, but it was about a, uh, a lawyer in his 30s in, in Connecticut, in a rural part of Connecticut, and the uh, uh, kinds of, of uh, things he did. Uh, and I wrote about almost 25,000 words. And then, unbelievably, I forgot about it. Uh, I, I just forgot about it. And I was going through some old hard drives recently, and I stumbled across a file that called, was called Novel. So I had to get this special stuff program to uh, go back to 19, uh, what year was it, uh, 88, and the word processing that I was using, altogether different then. And I finally ended up getting access to this thing I wrote uh, all those years ago. And I read it, and I liked it. So I'm thinking now that I want to continue writing a novel. And what I want to do, if I can, is bring all the stuff about the legal profession, lawyers, that I was writing about in a nonfiction sense. Because I had written a book in 2014 about lawyers in the profession. Uh, that was a series of, uh, of essays, 50, 1,500-word essays of various topics. And I wanted to write something more sustained. Uh, and that's what this new book was supposed to be about. But I'm thinking I can take all of what's in that book and put it into a novel. Uh, and then throw in car chases and shootings and all the rest of it to make it more interesting. Uh, but that's what I might be working on for the next uh, month or so, just to see if I can do it. So that's the short answer. or not so short answer. Well, that sounds like something I'd look forward to read. So let me know <laughs> if it ever happens. And I, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Well, sure. I've, uh, as I said before, it, it, writing is a, uh, I'm sure most people who write stuff will say this, it, it becomes a pretty uh, isolating thing because what you want to do is every day talk to somebody about, oh, how I fixed that paragraph or I did this or did that. And there's no one to talk about that because no one's doing what you're doing. It just doesn't matter to anybody else. So that accumulates over time. And it took me a fairly long time to write the book, to research and write and all that. So you just build up all the stuff you want to tell people. And you're about the first person. Uh, sometimes people come to me and they ask me five questions or something. And that's different. But you're the first person that uh, wanted to know more. So I'm just delighted to tell you all the stuff that uh, I can remember about writing the book. 